0: Today we're beginning our study in the book of Numbers. For those of you who are new to our congregation, we're going through the Bible in five years period of time and what we do is six days a week we read the word of God together and then the seventh day we come together and we break down the word in part or in whole from the message that we're going to be sharing on each Sunday. And so if you want to follow along with us, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can go to the information desk. We have a, a schedule of our reading for the entire year that you can follow along. So you'll know exactly where we are, what we're doing. Or you can go to our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com backslash Heights Christian Church. Um, and you can subscribe, uh, click the bell for notifications. I say this every week, like six times a week, right? But we read the entirety of the scripture that we're supposed to do. And we do it in, de- in kind of a devotional format so that you can take something away with you. And for some of these, what, what would be considered, I would say, drier books of the Bible, like Leviticus, like Numbers, like, like we haven't dig a little bit deeper to get some, some meaning. I would suggest stepping into the YouTube channel, you know, because we're going to read it. we're we'll like, okay, I read that. That was good. I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of it. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Because today's sermon is called an uh, an orderly society. Okay? Because we talked about a lot of technical aspects. You know, in the 1980s, early 1980s, those of you who are in this room probably, like myself, had a best-selling book in your possession. Didn't even know it was a best-selling book, but I can guarantee you this. There were millions of copies of it. Everywhere. And you read it because you wanted to know what was in this book. It was riveting. You know what it was? The instruction manual for the Commodore 64. How many of you had one of those? Raise your hand. Okay, so if you had a Commodore 64, number one, you were like, dude, this is new. It's a personal computer for the house. And you had to learn how to use it because it wasn't a typewriter. And so it came with an instruction manual that was about 240 pages long. And you would get inside of it and you would read it. So that you would know what you were doing. See, you guys laugh at all this right now. Like, I can't believe you guys did that. Well, you know why? That you don't have to do it today. It's because we did it 40 years ago. Okay? As a matter of fact, there was an article back in 2017 from The Atlantic that talked about that they no longer make You, you, if you can buy a computer today, they don't come with the manual. You have a quick start guide. You know why? Because we have gotten so used to computer language, it's like a second language for us now. You don't really realize how much we've learned because when we first did it, nobody had ever had one in their home before. They had to learn how to use it from scratch. Now we can't imagine not having one. How could you not know how to use it? 40 years ago, it wasn't a well-known thing. And therefore, we poured over these manuals to learn how to code stuff and write a program on a little five megabyte disk. I never understood why the floppy disks were hard and the hard disks were floppy. Did you guys ever know that? The hard, the hard disks were these long things, and they were like this, and you put them in there, and the, the floppy disk were these hard little things that you shoved in. I never understood how they got those names. I, I still, to this day, don't know. But those things that we read Millions of people had it. Millions of people read it. It was, whether you want to believe it or not, a bestseller. And in a way that many bestsellers aren't because a lot of bestsellers are just selling the books. Some people never read those books. But these people read because they knew they were going to use this computer and it was going to change everything. Back in 2017, they stopped printing these because now we have quick start guides because it's such a part of our life. We just go to the app and, and download it or scan and, and it gets us started and we do a couple of steps that we're all familiar with because we've all grown up with computers. Reading that computer manual was tedious You had to learn what the enter function and the shift function and the function functions up top, those 12 numbers up there, what they're supposed to be for. How do I navigate this? It was tedious stuff, but it was worthwhile because it helps us to where we are today, where we just take all of that stuff for granted because it's ingrained in us, right? So easy for us to do. The book of Numbers is a lot like that. The book of Numbers is tedious. It has a lot of information because this was a society, Israel, that had stepped out on its own by the hand of God, by the freedom of God. They had been enslaved for 400 years and now coming out of slavery to become a nation of their own. They had never done this before because when they went down, they were only 75 people. Seventy-five people doesn't need governance and all of this other stuff. It's like family, right? It's like a big family reunion. All right, stop slapping your sister. Don't, don't, don't mess with your cousin like that. Be nice to one another. That's really all you're doing. But now we have somewhere between one and a half and two and a half million people that God has delivered and a lot of the laws that we've looked at right now deal with that individual way in which we handle one another within the realm of society adultery and stealing and murder and theft, right? All of those aspects are the things that we've already covered in the law that individually within society we're supposed to do. Numbers begins to take a macro point of view and start looking at society as a whole. And it's really kind of an amazing thing when you start looking at the details. Because there's actually an application for you and I today that we can look at. We're going to get into later on as we walk through it. And so today there's not going to be a whole lot of quoting of these first chapters of Scripture. It's going to be summaries. I really uh, tell you guys, check out the first four chapters. Because that's where we're going to be hanging out in. That's what I'm going to be talking about. But a lot of them are just details. And I've read them all week. So you can go and listen online to every one of those Scriptures being broken down. But I want to give you kind of the the overarching theme of what's happening here in these first four chapters. We read the first six as a congregation this past week, but we're camping out in these first four because now we're defining roles within society as a whole instead of individually. And the first thing you'll note is the first two chapters are about, number one, numbering all the fighting men that were available for being in the army of Israel. First chapter is all about that. Breaks it down. 20 years or older who can be fighting men, who can be in the army for everybody. And the final number is 603,550 people. I want you to think about that for just a moment because that's an encouraging number for the people of Israel. There are not, if we took a a census of just Albuquerque proper, there's not 603,550 people in Albuquerque proper. If you do the surrounding area, there is. But think about that, the entire population of the Albuquerque metro area, if they were fighting men that says, we will defend this place, would you feel a little bit more confident about where you're staying? I think you would, right? 603,000 people, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people saying, we're ready to fight, we're ready, we're ready to defend this place. And God had given the assignment to the men who were 20 years old and older, to defend the people of Israel. Now the ones that were not included. Were the Levites. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But if you think about it. This was all the fighting men. From these 12 tribes. Save Levi's tribe. Levitical priesthood. And here's how this worked itself out. They had three tribes. When we camped someplace. Here's how we're going to camp. This is chapter 2. We're going to have three tribes to the north. We're going to have three tribes to the east. We're going to have three tribes to the west, three tribes to the south. And you will have no less than 108,000 people defending you on any side. That was the west side, by the way. That was (laughs) the west side. (laughs) I go through the west side every single day on my way to Rio Rancho. West side, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, imagine that. That would be your weakest side. 108,000 people to defend you on that side. That's pretty amazing if you think about it, right? 150,000 or 180,000. God wanted the people of Israel to to know that they were secure even in their wanderings. And so he commanded them as a community, this is how you're going to protect one another. And at the center of all of this was the tabernacle. So we have three tribes on each side and the tabernacle in the middle. And when they traveled, you had six tribes in the front, six tribes in the back, and the tabernacle in the middle. You'll notice the center of all of this was the worship of God. God. The worship of God was that which tied this community together and therefore was the most defended section of any place within the community of God. This is what he wanted. As a matter of fact, while the Levites in general did not take up fighting places, what they did do is they guarded the tabernacle. And so in chapters 3 and in chapters 4, we take a microcosm of what happens with the Levites. And they're all numbered out for the people who can defend, guard It says care for in the NIV, but honestly, the ESV is better because the guard is a better word for it because what that way we're supposed to do is strangers were going to come in and molest any of the things of God. They were ordered to kill them. You don't kill them if you're just caring for it. I'm just caring for myself. Die! You know, it doesn't work like that. You're guarding it, right? They're there to guard the worship of God in the prescribed manner that he has talked to the people of Israel that they are supposed to do. So he doesn't want any of those things molested or treated in a bad way. And so the Levites were given charge to guard the tabernacle. 22,273 of them. Think about that. That's a lot of people to guard the, the tabernacle. And they were given different jobs from within there. Because within the tribe of Levi, there were three predominant clans. There was the clan of Kohath, there was a clan of Gershom, and there was a clan of uh, Merari. It's like Ferrari, but with an M. That's how I remembered it. I was like, how do I say this word? Merari. That's pretty awesome, actually. And each of them had different forms and functions from what they were supposed to take care of concerning the tabernacle. And these were important things to God. So important because one of these groups, the Kohath group, that clan, was in charge of transporting the most holy place. And if you guys know, the most holy place could only be entered into by the high priest once a year. So there was a very special way in which you treated the most holy things of God. So this particular clan was given very specific instructions on how they were to transport. The priests were supposed to first take down everything and cover everything in a prescribed way that God would say so that the Kohathites could take the most holy things of God without the judgment of God following on them that's how serious God treats worship in community and when we forget those things it becomes a very big danger for us I don't know how many of you work with electricity any of you guys work with electricity I know some of you guys do Electricity is an amazing thing. We have, we power my microphone, the lights, the internet. Everything that we've got at home is powered in some form or fashion, mostly by electricity. We're so used to it. But if you work with electricity, you got to respect electricity, don't you? Because if you don't respect it, deadly things happen. You can mess yourself up real bad or you can kill yourself. Or other people. And it doesn't matter whether or not you're used to it. You still have to take care of it. As a matter of fact, I would dare say that those who are most used to it need to be most aware of it because they're the most likely to treat it nonchalantly. Oh, I do this all the time. Same thing happens with the things of God. So we're going to look at a, a place in the Old Testament real quick where this whole idea in chapter 4 really plays itself out it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and what's happened at this point is that the philistines have come and they have raided the temple of god and they've taken the most holy things and they've taken the ark of the covenant and the ark of the covenant went to the Philistines. But then we started seeing that God started defending himself amongst the other gods of the Philistines and their god was fallen down and broken uh, broken limbs and stuff like that. And they're like and they had all types of curses happening to them and boils and they're like, "Let's get rid of this or I know we want it in battle, but let's get rid of it. Let's send it back to them. And maybe God will stop all of this that's happening to us." And so they sent it back. And when they send it back, David says, well, we're going to go grab the ark. So let's check it out in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. David again brought together out of all of Israel's chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all of his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab who was on the hill of Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab were guiding the new new cart with the ark of God on it and Ohio was walking in front of it and David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines sistrums and cymbals and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon Usa reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Usa because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. See, the ark of God was one of these most holy things that if they had went back into Numbers and looked at the prescribed way in which they were supposed to handle the Ark, the priests would have come out and covered the Ark so that they would have carried it on poles and it would be ready. And they would have brought the tribe of Levi out and they would have the Kohathites, that clan that descended from them, to come out to carry the Ark at that time. They didn't do that. They thought they could treat the holy things of God with disrespect, or they didn't know, they thought they were treating it with respect, and God broke out. Notice David's reaction afterwards. Verse 8, then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzza, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzza. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me and he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with them in the city of David instead he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Giddite it's a day of celebration they're coming out, they're saying we got the ark of the Lord back and they're traveling down the road and in traveling down the road because they are not doing this the prescribed way that God had said he wanted the most holy things of God to be dealt with when Uzzah reaches up his hand to steady the cart, thinking he's doing a reverent act. God says, this is irreverent. This is not what I have said in my word. Therefore, he kills him. Which is exactly what he warns would have happened with the Kohathites. And David pulls everything aside. It'd be three months before they finally bring the ark in the right way. God's serious about His worship in community. He wants the holy things of God to be treated with respect and care and love among His people. And so what we see in these first four chapters are these two things. We see the fighting men. We see the role of men within community to be defenders. Defenders of their nation. Defenders of their families. Defenders of the worship of God. That's what they're supposed to be. And then we see that everything within society was centered around their worship of God. That's why it's the most protected thing in society. That's why the tabernacle is not on the outskirts, the first thing that was attacked. It was on the inside of all of the 603,550 men who were ready to fight and the 22,273 Levites who were ready to say, if you get by them, you're not touching the holy things of God. Everything... About the Israelite society was to be centered on God. Everything. It's easy to say, but God didn't just demonstrate it by delivering his people, even in his commands. It, the central location of defense was about the tabernacle and the worship of God in community together. Now, we're not under the old covenant anymore. There's not a nation, a, a Christianity nation that we can point to. There are many nations that have been founded under Christian principles, under a Judeo Christian worldview ethic. But there's not something you can just point to. That is the Christian nation on earth. Doesn't work like that. Not like you can with the Jewish nation on earth, right? Israel is the Jewish nation on earth. No place else is. Can't do that with the Christian nation on earth. We're under a new covenant. But it doesn't mean that those same principles do not apply to us. They apply slightly differently as Jesus has come and died and risen again for you and I. First place is this. Men, you still have a role. God still has a role for you as men that mirrors that of the Old Testament. These men who were defenders of their nation. We are called as men to protect our families. We are called as men to provide for our families. We are called as men to be the spiritual leaders of our families. That has never changed, Old Testament or New. Those things are still there. That as believers in Jesus Christ, it is important for us to realize this is first and foremost. It's the central being of who we are supposed to be as men, It's supposed to be what guards us and guides us as a family. And the family is the smallest unit of the community of believers found within the church. So very interesting to me. Because it's been wedding season in our family. Had a couple of weddings over the course of the summer seeing this played out as a matter of fact there's others within our congregation that that are moving toward that others outside of our congregation who have been affiliated with our youth group that I'm also doing that so there's kind of a wedding season that's happening right now which is really cool and one of the places we hang out in a lot when we go through our marital counseling this is a preview for those who haven't started yet this is a reminder for those of you who have and this is Maybe new information for those of you who've done this before. But we hang out a whole lot in Ephesians chapter 5. And there's a reason why we hang out in Ephesians chapter 5. Because Ephesians chapter 5 defines for us, most clearly in my opinion, the roles of who we are supposed to be in Christ in our marriages. And if you go to that chapter, starting in verse 21... Chapter five and verse 21. We're going to read this all together till the end of the chapter. There's some important aspects that we neglect to our detriment, because God is just as jealous over the holy things He's created today as He was in the times of Israel. So read it together. Submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery when I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. A lot of your bibles will say at the very beginning of this section usually starting in 22 but it really starts in 21. It'll say wives and husbands or something along those lines. Marriage roles. I want to tell you something real quick. We just read this all together that's not the context of this passage. Because Paul himself defines what the context of this passage is, the last second to last verse, he says this. He says this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See Christ and the church is the reality. Husbands and wives are the mirror image. Christ in the church is the way in which God wants the community of God to grow because He created marriage. He created the family, the smallest microcosm of what would be the church, right? Of the community of which we're supposed to be a part of together. The community in which Christ died for. See, Christ is the husband Who self-sacrificially gave himself for the church. Making her holy. Washing her with water. Sprinkled with blood through the word to make her holy. To present her to himself as holy and blameless. That's the picture. Colossians chapter 1 further talks about, you know, the deity of Christ. And it says, all things were created by him and for him. Marriage wasn't created for us as husband and wife. It was created first and foremost for Christ and the church. And here's the important thing you guys need to understand. And why this is so important. See, Christ established the church in His blood. And the church is the community of believers who share in the faith of Christ. Who has washed them and made them holy by the washing of water through His Word and His blood shed on the cross for you and me. And we become community together based upon that. And it has been a shame to see The disregard for the community of the body of believers. Because that's the reality. And your marriages are a reflection of that reality. There's a study that has just been done. I believe I've mentioned it before here, but it's worth mentioning again. Nancy Piercy just has a a book out, can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, I wish I could, I'm sorry. But that new book is all about marriage and it's all about family. And one of the things that she found, and she found out was that the ones in our society who have the most stable marriage are those who are involved in the body of Christ on a regular basis, totally involved within community above atheism, above people who have two different sets of beliefs. You want the most stable marriage in America? The most stable marriage in America that you can have today are people who are committed to the body of believers. You want to know why? Because I believe the Word of God has answered that for us. This is the reality, and it's reflected in our marriages. You want to know the irony of all these groups that were met together The ones who had the worst marriages were not the atheists. They were the nominal Christians. The ones who did not respect the community of believers and only attended occasionally. They had more of a chance of divorce. They had more of a chance of abuse that happened within their uh, families. They had more of a chance of every bad category. More than the atheists, more than all the other people. The best ones were the most committed in the body of believers and the worst ones were the ones who were only nominally committed to the body of believers. Do you think that God is jealous of the covenant relationships that he has created that point to Jesus Christ? I think that he is. I think it works itself out in real life. I really do. And it's why it's a shame when we make excuses not to be here. It's like handling electricity. Even if we don't realize the damage it's doing to us, because guess what? If we're flippant about our commitment within community with one another, our self-sacrificial nature, that we're supposed to be in each other's lives, not just for these two hours or hour and a half on a Sunday morning. This is why we tell you get involved in life group. You know why? Because you do life together. We start living in community the way God designed us to be. Praying for one another, getting in each other's lives, praying to help each other in our weaknesses. Celebrating with one another. We see positive things happening because of the honoring of God's word and God's relationship in our lives. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And the less that we do it, the easier it is to break that commitment In our marriages. Because this is the place. Where we're supposed to be self-sacrificial. One to another. This is the place. Where we're supposed to be in each other's lives. And know about the needs that are happening. You know why? Because Christ has done so much for us. And we should be encouraging each other. And our walking with Jesus Christ. On a daily and weekly basis. We should absolutely be doing that. And it's not just for us being here. Once a week or once a month. It's. Us being here in community, in each other's lives. Good, bad, ugly, everything in between. You know why? Because God wants us to be a community of people because we're going to be a community in heaven. This is practice, guys. Whether you realize it or not, and there's nothing worse, to hear, worse for me to hear than a Christian can say, oh God, I, I love your son, but I can't stand your people. You will never, ever, ever convince me of your love for me if you're telling me my wife's a horrible person. Just not going to do it. Any guy in here worth his salt hears somebody dissing on his wife, they would be like, you're not a friend of mine. And yet we are so easy to do it with Christ in the church and you realize we're his bride. so easy I love you Jesus can't stand your people can't exist I'll be the first one to admit we're messy people still being redeemed by Jesus Christ falling and failing and flailing in our goal to be sanctified in Christ and draw closer to him first one to admit it but you know what, I can't help but think if I give up on this body of believers, it makes it very easy for me to give up on that beautiful woman that I married nearly 30 years ago. Because I bring that into my marriage. And say, well, if I give up on these people, then I can give up on her so many times. Have I watched that happen? And oftentimes... Those people who have given up and walked away from their relationship with their wife or with their husband, end up walking away from the church, and their relationship with God doesn't happen all the time, And sometimes from our brokenness, God brings healing. But God wants us to treasure this time and this place together, because we are called, just like the people of Israel were called to be something different than they were used to see the world doesn't understand this community just don't you're never going to get the instruction of what it's like to be in community a godly community outside of the church you're not nothing else will mirror it in the same way nothing Because this, just like the people of Israel, is founded with the centrality on the worship of God in the middle of it all. See, the people of Israel were to guard with their lives, first and foremost, the community of believers that made up the nation of Israel. And most importantly, the worship of God that was central to that nation. As believers in Jesus Christ, that mandate still stands. The community of the believers of Christ in the church should be something that you and I defend with every part of our being. Because if we don't, it makes our way into those other covenant relationships that are based upon that first one. Of Christ in the church. This was something that Israel was learning. Because they were learning how to be. A people of God. An ordered society. Where the order is first God. In community. And second defense. Of that community. And that worship of God. We're called to be. The bride of Christ, the church, the gathered people of God who through confessional faith of belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who died on the cross for your sin and for my sin binds us together should be a stronger unity than any other unity that we have. So we should be around one another. We should encourage one another. We should be in this place with one another. Growing together with one another. Guarding everything because Christ is the center of this relationship that all of us share. See, I want you guys to have amazing marriages. But it starts with Christ and community. Not my words, it's his, I'm sorry. And we're called to defend it. And so guys, you need to be those spiritual leaders. You need to be those providers and those protectors of anything that would tear that down in your family. Say, no, this is important because from this, this reality of the community of Christ and the church come everything else. Come our marriage. Comes our family. Comes our kids. Comes the building up of our community. It's first and foremost found with Christ. And his sacrifice for the church. That we're to emulate. One of the cool things about that study. Concerning the men. Who were faithful to God. Not just in themselves. But in community. That had the best results of anybody concerning the stability of their marriages, concerning the lack of abuse, which is awesome to see that there wasn't near as much abuse. The most quoted passage of Scripture by those men was the Ephesians chapter 5 passage I just shared with you. Because they understood the reality of Christ in the church and their marriage to one another was dependent upon the former, not the other way around. Let's defend our community with everything that we are, knowing that God will honor that in every other area that He's created for our benefit, for our growth, and for His glory. Would you stand with me? God, thank you so much for this day and this time. I just, I praise you, dear Heavenly Father, that we're in community today. It's so sweet to be able to be around. Friends who have come in for a wedding, dear Heavenly Father, and have this wonderful time together, and I just pray, dear Heavenly Father, you will help us to treasure our time together. You have called us to be in community with one another, growing together in Christ, realizing that it is the the reality, and our, our families are the reflection of that reality. Help us, dear Heavenly Father, to understand you better so that we can love our wives and love our husbands better so we can love our children the way that Christ has loved the church. God, I pray for that self-sacrificial love to permeate this place, dear Heavenly Father, and be defended by all who call themselves believers in Jesus Christ. We just thank you, Lord. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for this day, this opportunity to meet with our community, to strengthen us in you, in every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.